Hello. Welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am very excited to bring the conversation I had with Ines Hippolito. Ines is a lecturer at the Berlin School of Mind and Brain. She's a philosopher and she's well published in the scientific literature. Numerous degrees, Bachelor's of Philosophy, Master's of Philosophy, Master's of Science, Doctor of Philosophy. She's also the co-founder and vice president of the International Society of the Philosophy of the Sciences of Mind. And she has written on many topics, which include uh, cognition, embodiment, phenomenology, and many others. In this conversation, we talk about many of those themes. We start by talking about the different models of the brain, uh, kind of historically and currently. We talk about the embodied mind and its different uses. We talk about her work with Carl Friston and uh, the work on free energy principle and where that sits within the models of the mind. We talk about artificial intelligence as you know a potential living system. We talk about Merleau-Ponty and the work on the phenomenology of embodiment. We talk about the senses and the role of perception. Uh, we also talk about the role of the self and what that could be, and uh, many other topics. Uh, I've wanted to talk with Ines for a long time. Um, I've read a lot of her papers. Uh, I think she's quite brilliant. Um, she has uh, such a good marriage between two fields of uh, cognitive neuroscience and philosophy. As you hear in the conversation, we're both big fans of Rue Ponty and uh, of the phenomenologist in general. Uh, she was quite lovely to talk to. Uh, as I said, she's she's uh, quite, quite, quite brilliant. And uh, it was wonderful to hear her explain many of these very, very hard concepts in a way that was understandable uh, for, for, for many people. And also, it was really nice for myself to... Uh, really engage and kind of think out loud and kind of pull things apart and say, what could this be or some other ideas? And she's absolutely wonderful for that. And so um, as always, uh, you can uh, subscribe to my uh, free Substack where you can listen to this conversation and all other conversations. Um, so get over there and follow subscribe. And uh, now I bring you and yes, Hippolyto. I'm here with Ines Hippolito. How's it going, Ines? Very good. And how's it going with you? It's good. It's good. It's good. I'm very happy to have you on the on the podcast to talk about all of your uh, wonderful research that uh, that you've been doing. But uh, before we get into all of it, uh, why don't you tell listeners who you are, what your background is in, your research is in, and what you're uh, currently uh, writing about and, and researching. Okay, so I was born. No, nah, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm a I'm a lecturer um, and researcher at the Berlin School of Mind and Brain at the moment, um, where um, I teach and do research mostly on uh, cognition and, more specifically, uh, cognition from the point of view of uh, Radical inactivism, uh, complex systems theory, free energy principles. So these are the kinds of like frameworks that I use and apply in order to understand the diverse different aspects of cognition. And then um, a couple of years ago, I also started um, sort of like um, zooming into a certain kind of line of research, which is in um, artificial intelligence. So 
What does it mean um, to interact with environments that are sort of like ever more permeated by technology, but especially uh, AI, uh, gadgets or smart environments or neurotechnology, all of those kinds of things. And how does, um, on the one hand, um, this technology, AI technology emerges from um, us as human um, species as cognitive beings, but also, on the other hand, how, how is it that um, that sort of uh, AI technology also shapes our cognition? So this is sort of like where I am at the moment, uh, research-wise. I've got several other collaborations, um, but I am based in, in Berlin at the Berlin School of Mind and Brain, which is part of the Humboldt uh, University. So it's all all wonderful, and what especially on the AI stuff. I mean, you'll just be you'll be very busy for a long time. I mean, this is something that everybody is starting to really take serious. They're really thinking about it from all different angles. I think every uh, every sector in our society is now starting to really. I mean, some people have been doing this for much longer, um, but now people are starting to really. How does this impact our ethics? How does this impact our commerce? How does this impact? technology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it sounds like uh, we'll need many people like yourself to really try to uh, understand these things from very uh, different perspectives. And so I, I, I'm sure we'll, we'll get into uh, some of that. Um, so let's, let's first start by talking about uh, kind of how you conceptualize many of these, um, I guess you could say, uh, issues or, or these kind of topics. So there's different models of the brain out there. And I think the one that is used within neuroscience, especially computational neuroscience, is the type of Bayesian brain kind of model and then the free energy uh, principle. So can you give us, I guess, a kind of overview of how the framework you use? So you can talk about uh, first in free energy principle um, and then how you use that for many of the things that you're, you're thinking about within uh, cognition and technology. Yeah, for sure. Um, so there are different ways to get there, or at least there are two ways to get there. And it the different um, the different ways depend on they are a little bit um, sort of depending on where you come from historically speaking in cognitive science. Um, so. Um, in the fifties, with the com with the computer revolution, um, you started off this conversation in these frameworks of the brain as analogous to a machine, with especially with Turing machines. And then, if you look at the history of philosophy of mind, at least the Western philosophy of mind, uh, and analytic philosophy of mind, um, what you see is um, a sort of uh, a, a history repeating itself. So what you do is, in philosophy of mind, you end up um, adopting the best technology of your time in order to understand the brain So or cognition, but I'll get to definitions. Um, so what you do is, what if I would think about the mind as if it were a Turing machine? And there you have the modularity of the mind by Jerry Fodor. And that stays for 20 years. And then um, new technology comes up, such as parallel distributed processing, which was uh, very revolutionary and still is because it is at the basis of um, neural networks, which is extremely important for us to understand the brain. 
And then someone comes up and says, what if um, the mind is actually um, this parallel distributed processing uh, machine? And then you have all these connectionism-inspired theories of mind, which then um, are going to relate to functionalism, what is the function of the mind, and all of that. So that's like sort of like um, uh, uh, a little bit of uh, the history of philosophy of mind and History repeating itself. So with the Bayesian brain, it's exactly the same thing. It's um, what happens is, okay, so now we have um, a different paradigm. We have predictive coding as a very important and um, uh, um, very um, valuable tool to understand brain data analysis or to make sense of brain data analysis. And what is that? That is simply this data that you collect from scanners, from brain, um, from brain scans, right? And because you have a vast amount of data, what you need to do is you need to come up with a way to understand how that data was generated. And by that, I mean to understand uh, the causal relations in the topology of connections um, and excitation processes that happened in the brain such that they outputted or gave rise to that kind of data that you collected. So then you need to develop a brain model or a model of the brain. And that's where Bayesian inference becomes super important and relevant because in in very simple terms, what Bayesian uh, inference does is it tells you how to incorporate new information into a model that you already have of something. doesn't matter what it is, a model of something, right? And the weather, right? So then we apply this very important tool to understand the brain, uh, the activity in the brain or a part of uh, the brain. Um, So then um, you start having these very um, epistemically important models or gains that were coming from using these simulations that is called predictive coding. So predictive coding are models of the brain that are using Bayesian inference. That's great. That's awesome. That's really, really important work. But as, you know, history would repeat itself, now we are going to say, or we could say that, well, what if the mind is Bayesian? What if the mind is predictive coding? And there you have it. So here is is where you have all of the predictive processing theories coming, which is by virtue of saying that the mind comes down to predictive processing uh, information. Right. So this is predictive processing. Um, now here things start becoming a little bit interesting because now we are going to need a definition. Mm-hmm. Now we need to define what is this mind that I'm talking about, right? Mm-hmm. What is this? And that's where you then find the variety. And there are sort of like a same umbrella, which why would I say a same umbrella? Well, because they're, the, the, the various theories are going to be united in reductionism of some kind, of some degree, right? And realism. Why? Well, because all of them are saying that the mind, however you are going to define it, the mind is literally a predictive machine. So that's realism about the model that you just used. So all of them would be endorsing realism. And all of them are going to be reductionist in the sense that they are going to reduce the mind to information processes. Mm-hmm. 
as opposed to all of these other well-established traditions, such as phenomenology or pragmatism or all of that tradition or Buddhist philosophy, as opposed to all of that. So these are the, the, the waters that we are navigating. We are navigating in these waters where there's reductionism and there is realism. Okay. Now they're going to tell different stories, but they agree on these two points at least. Right. So then you have more sort of like more traditional kind of like endorsing of predictive coding and philosophy of mind, which is the, the prediction error minimization theory which is mostly endorsed by Jakob Huey. And why am I saying that this is the most traditional? Well, it's because it is very clear in that particular theory that Jakob Huey reduces the mind. So now I'm going to do some definitions to sort of like um, tidy up the house. Um, the mind reduces to the brain. So the brain is encapsulated from not only the world, but also from the organism, which is the body. So the mind is the brain. It is quite clear. Um, you can find it um, in many passages that this is the understanding and the claim. I'm not making this up. You can find it in, in a paper in now since 2014, where literally you can see the quote, which would be very non-phenomenology, non-Mohloponti, um, which literally says that, well, the mind is a predictive machine. You can throw away the body, the world, and other people. So that's why I'm saying this is the most reductionist or most traditional way of understanding um, the mind as Bayesian or as a predictive processing machine. Then you have the one that is so-called radical predictive processing. Why is it radical? Well, it's radical in relation to this previous one that I just said. Why is it radical? Because it does this important job of um, disencapsulating the brain, the, the mind from the brain. How? Well, because it brings in the body to do a role, to play a function. We are in functionalism after all. So we call in, in radical predictive processing, we call in the body to play a certain functional role in, importantly, cognitive processes in the cognitive processing of information, right? So that's why um, it is important. It brings in the body, calls in the body to play a role, but this is a form of weak embodiment. So this is nothing to do with what Merleau-Ponty would um, understand as a body or embodiment, right? So all the embodiment that is talked about in this radical predictive processing is a weak form of embodiment where... Action and the body is called up to play a role as an information processing machine. So these are like the two different predictive processing theories, which are both reductionist and both endorse realism. And then there's the free energy principle, which I'm not sure if you want me to go straight into that, because that's a whole other. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's a whole that's a whole other other bit of it. So I do want you to get there. But let me just one clarifying point. When some people or some writers will talk about the embodied mind, <clears throat> they're meaning it from this second uh, uh, model that you're discussing typically, right? People are not looking at the phenomenological components or all of the elements of how the body is being used. There's a kind of partial element of how the the, bo the rest of the body works in this type of embodied mind kind of thing. Is, is that accurate or, 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 or no? Okay, so it depends because if you are referring to umeva, 
endorses predictive processing, then UMF endorses predictive processing is endorsing a weak form of embodiment that is not Mohlo-Ponty's embodiment. Because the, the, the reason is quite simple. Mohlo-Ponty would never endorse the view of the mind as the processing of information, as the computational processing of information. Right. That's that's exactly what Mughal-Ponty said that embodiment wasn't. <laughs> right. So when you call in embodiment to make a point within or by endorsing predictive processing, it's almost a contradictio in adjectum, as one would say in Latin. It's it's a contradiction because, um, or at least you are using the concept embodiment in a in a whole different way, yeah, in a yeah. way that is not the phenomenological way. So there is some confusion in there because at the very beginning of uh, predictive processing is the new black in philosophy of mind, which is like 10 years ago. At the very beginning, because there was so much talk about embodiment, uh, there was a lot of excitement that predictive processing would be now the new computational way that would be compatible with, for example, Mohlo-Ponty's philosophy, phenomenology, pragmatism, and all of that. But it is not the case because it is incredibly clear that the mind is reduced to a predictive processing machine. So it's almost like you're trying to marry. I think some people on the predictive processing end understand that the maybe the brain and, and, and the mind there as well. It's it's not everything that's that's working there. The body is useful. At least some people may see it this way. But it sounds like there's an inaccurate uh, um uh, mode that's ha- trying to happen where they're trying to connect the body with the brain and how they're used. So they say, oh, it's an embodied mind. Of course, you need both. Obviously, it's all getting inputs from the environment. But in, in there's a either a misunderstanding or an inaccuracy there because how we understand embodiment, at least in the way that Murlu Panti uh, referenced it, is not about all these processing, right? So it's a, there's an inaccuracy that's going on or a misunderstanding at the very least. Okay, yes. we'll, come, we'll, we'll come to Merleau-Ponty. I, I want to give him plenty of time. So why don't you tell us about um, free energy principle? I know it's, it's a really big, big concept. So there's this kind of third model uh, that's out there, which has its critics, right? I think most people, the thing I hear the most is, okay, you know, this is very in the weeds. What is it really saying? What is it? What's really going on? Is it really this grand theory of everything, et cetera? So Maybe you can help us uh, understand, or how do you understand, or how do you use uh, this kind of third model? Well, I can try. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so to me, it is interesting. Uh, So the way that I described until now, the sort of like you come from this like um, endorsing an analogy between the mind and the machine. So the mind is a predictive machine, which comes from Helmholtz, right? The mind is a, is a predictive machine, uh, Bayesian inference, Bayesian brain, all of that. And from, and by, by coming from that side, you work your way up to predictive processing, sorry, to active inference. So that's one way of arriving at active inference that is possible. It's a different philosophical way. Um, than the one that I'm going to describe now, which is my preferred way of arrival, of coming, of starting off in the free energy principle and arriving at active inference, right? Because I do not endorse, um, these views of uh, the mind being analogous or reducible to, um, a machine of any kind, really. Um, 
So now the the way that I described earlier is called the ro- low road. Carl called it the low road, which I thought it was really interesting, and I completely agree. Uh, so there's the low road and the high road. What I described is that um, low road and the high road you start off with a completely different premise. So the premise for the previous one that I mentioned is the mind is a predictive machine or the mind is a machine. So that's the premise for the the previous way that I described, which is the low road to active inference. The high road to active inference uh, starts with a different premise, which I prefer because it starts with the observation of the natural world. And I prefer that um, as a scientific method. Um, so you start off with the observation of the natural world, and by doing so, you will observe patterns of behavior. And this, to me, makes much more sense because uh, I also work on complex system theory, and you know, um, I um, I'm particularly um, interested in in understanding um, behavior, cognition, psych psychological um, behavior as as complex systems in the brain as a complex system. So then it makes more sense to me. So then you start off with observing these patterns and there are some certain patterns that you have to observe, of course, but one of them that is like the one that is relevant to the free energy principle is that um, living systems doesn't matter really how you are going to bump into them and see what they're doing and try to make sense of what they're doing, whichever it is that they're engaged with the world doing, they're trying to survive. They're trying to maintain themselves, right? So this is what is so interesting and so remarkable about life is that they are these open systems that, according to the second law, they should be dying because any open system, according to thermodynamics, any open system that you have in the world um, tends or according to the second law, it will tend to chaos, to the increase of entropy. So you have a cup of coffee and eventually the cup of coffee will, uh, the temperature will um, will um, go lower until it reaches the temperature of the room, right? And not the other way around, right? That doesn't happen. That's the second law happening. And that's because the cup cannot interact with the world to maintain that temperature, that it would like to have because it would be a preferable state for whatever reason um, that the cup would like that to be the case. But we do. Living beings can, right? And that's what's so precious about life is that the second law tells you that you should be perishing like the cup of coffee. You should be perishing. You should be tending uh, towards uh, the increase of entropy. And what living beings do is that they interact with the world in order to defy the second law, to stay alive, so not to tend to chaos, right? So then by the observation of this, you come up with the first principles theory, which is that um, living systems organize, self-organize to interact with the environment in order to maintain their existence. Now here, because I think this approach is much more interesting because it allows us now to establish tremendous connections with biology. 
right? It, it allows us to now say things, interesting things about how an open system, like a living system, is both autonomous and precarious. It's both autonomous because it is a self-organizing system, but it is also precarious because it must, it must uh, engage and interact with the environment in order to stay alive. Now, Note how different this is from what I described earlier, where I said that the brain was encapsulated from the world, the environment, and other people. This is completely different. Mm -hmm. um, so the idea is that um, open, open, uh, um, open, open systems like organisms, like living organisms, they must interact with the environment to exchange matter, energy, or information in order to maintain uh, themselves alive and defy the, the, the law, the second law of thermodynamics, right? So then you have this principle, which tells you a simple thing, which is that systems must engage with the environment to survive, and they do so by minimizing free energy, which is the energy that the system has in order to do important things. What are these important things? Now, note how we can make here another super cool link with philosophy again, existentialism. These cool things that this system can do is the things that are going to be relevant or important to the point of view of their existence. So <laughs> the, the cool things that these systems, whomever they are, whichever they are, um, whatever they are, the things that are going to be cool for these systems to do what they want to be doing, right, is what is relevant or important to the perspective of their own idiosyncratic existence. How, how is that? Maybe I shouldn't use the word determined here. How, how, how does that come about then? of what is relevant for this, the, the system. Yeah, that's the next question, right? <laughs> right, right, right. right. <laughs> exactly. Um, so then how to determine? So basically what you're going to see is, you're going to see two things. You're going to see that whichever the organism is, whatever the organism is, is going to be aiming to survive, not to perish, right? To maintain itself. So this means that there are or there is a state space of possibilities in which you can find the organism such that the organism hasn't died yet, mm -hmm. right? As the law says. So it hasn't died. So it means that it's doing a pretty good job in maintaining itself within the boundaries of that state space of possibilities, of possible states that the system can be at not to die, right? Now, what's the, as it navigates that state space, the organism is going to tend towards states that are preferable and is going to tend against states that are not preferable. And here, another important link that you can now make is with complex systems theory and attractors and repellers and explain all of this through that terminology, which is also really cool. But I'm going to continue. So then you can you start seeing that the system is doing these two things tending towards states that are preferable and against states that are not preferable, right? Okay, but now the important question is the one that you asked. How to determine these states that are preferable? How does the organism in its idiosyncratic existence determine what are the states that are going to be preferable and what are the ones that are not going to be preferable, right? Okay, so here um, the theory allows for two important ones. So one is the one that is, of course, already defined by the phenotype. So example, 
it is very unlikely that a butterfly would tend towards being in water. And it is very unlikely that a butterfly, that sorry, that a fish would tend towards not being in water. So these are states that are already predetermined by the body. And now you can also make a connection to phenomenology. There are states that are going to be preferable depending on your embodiment, the body that you have, right? So I'm not even doing any phenomenology yet, but I could. Mm-hmm. If I then apply all of these to the social cultural settings that we live at, I can. Right. So that's why this can be interesting to link to that. But I'm going to continue just like the simple story. Um, so one uh, is the phenotype, uh, and the body that you have, which is going to allow you a set, a limited set of possibilities that you can interact with the world by with according to that set of possibilities that you have that is determined by the body that you have by your embodiment. Um, and the second one is by your learning curve, which is development. Throughout development, you learn things, right? Mm-hmm. And you learn how to engage, interact, couple with the environment in such and such and such ways. So beyond, and not, and note how cool this point now is beyond the body being simple, a medium of more information processing, you can think of the body in a much more interesting way. Yeah. As determining so much of what you do, the way that you engage and what you learn and the way that you interact with the world and other people. So the body is not just a vessel of information processing. Right. So then you see, uh, from this point, you can, um, describe, you haven't said anything that is, um, super, um, defining of one single creature. We are, we have to remember that this road that we are taking is a first principles approach. It's a principle and principles are generalizable. Right. So everything that I've said so far, you can apply to any living system. So typically, it is very likely that whichever living system you're going to bump into, come across with, that system is doing whatever business it is doing in order to maintain itself such that it seeks the states that are going to be relevant from the point of view of their existence, of their embodied existence. It all makes sense. I'm going to throw a wrench here real real early. So if you want to wait till later, you can tell me. But I guess you're saying that these are all first principles that have generalizability. So some of the, what you would say, the ecological validity works here, right? It, it can work. It can generalize. Okay. How do we determine in an age of technology and in, and, and in with uh, how we're understanding AI, what constitutes a living system because many people would say that certain forms of ai or potentially certain forms of ai you can define artificial and intelligence if you want together separately but let's just go with um you know a, a kind of a prior here of ai how do we understand if how is that a, a living system so again if 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 i'm jumping ahead here you can you can stop me but um i think this would make sense for maybe multicellular organisms on the planet 
and maybe unicellular organisms on the planet, you know, humans, animals, mammals, insects, etc. But I guess then does this not work or potentially not work, or we don't know enough yet for things that are not living systems or things that are yet developed to be a certain ceiling of a living system that we understand how the, the free energy works in. Okay. There's um there's a lot to unpack there. I'm really happy because then okay, um you you can apply the free energy principle to both things that are alive and non-alive. Which can be uh, and has been raised as a criticism, but we we could get to that as well. But first, I want to just like say that you can apply. So you can apply the free energy principle, or even more precisely, Markov Blanket's formalism, to anything that is an open system. Because people tend to think about the free energy principle as this unifying theory of cognition or of the brain. But but in, in reality, what happens is it is a, a very cool formalism that you can apply to anything that is an open system, or at least I find it um, much more cooler like that, um, which just means there's like underlying assumptions that you are thinking of things that exist in the world that interact with each other and they interact in ways that they influence each other. So this is very much depending on many of the very interesting ideas that are developed under process philosophy by Whitehead and coming all the way from Heraclitus in Western um, and ancient uh, Greece uh, Greek philosophy. So it's all about processes, interactions, changes, shifts, and that kind of thing. So basically, you can also apply the free energy principle and active inference to explain the behavior of any system that is an open system that is, of course, by virtue of definition of being an open system, is interacting and influenced by the environment and vice versa. So that is one thing. So you could apply that to um uh, an AI system and uh, explain an AI system interacting with the world or even human robot interaction through the that kind of like um, uh, formal toolkit. You can. So that's one way of doing it. The other one, which I think was the one that you are more after, which is philosophically more interesting, I think, um, is... Um, whether or not or until what point can we say that a certain artificial intelligence system is cognitive such that I could apply this kind of formalism as if it were cognitive. Mm -hmm. So I, I will pick up on that because um, that, there's such good philosophy that you can do there. Like it's really interesting to think about it. I, it's, I find it quite stimulating. So in the tradition that I was describing earlier with, let's call it a mind-machine analogy, in the tradition, the monk of the cognitive is very well defined as mental representation. Mental representation is the mark of the cognitive, which simply means that whichever the machine is doing is for the output of a mental representation. What is a mental representation? It's a bit hard to define because, of course, people don't agree. But usually a mental representation is something with semantic properties, such as uh, utterances, um, such as uh, beliefs that I hold, uh, me um, making a map for you to follow to get somewhere. So that would be a mental representation, which is 
um, the sort of like the reductionist part of the story that I was telling um, before. Uh, the mark of the cognitive is mental representation such that all the cognitive interactions or all the engagements that you have with the environment as a cognitive system, they are going to be or coming down to mental representation. So basically, um, cognitive systems are in the business, if you will, of um, epistemic activity, always telling what is the case, what is the case, what is the case with uh, truth conditions and all of that. So this is just like um, in really, um, in really, real quick um, to say that the mark of the cognitive is the, the mental representation in there, in which case then it's interesting to then think about what are the implications of that to think about uh, the cognitive capacities of an artificial intelligence system. Now, when you move into um, non-representationalist theories, such as all of those E's that are united under that umbrella that is called e-cognition, right? When you move there, uh, the mark of the cognitive is not uh, mental representation. A lot of people um, um, make the mistake of thinking that those theories under the umbrella of e-cognition um, reject mental representation, which is not the case. Um, simply, the, these theories usually say that cognition is not reducible to mental representation, even though we are enculturated through development to engage with the world by virtue of having developing um, representational skills, by, by virtue of uh, learning symbolic systems. Um, but here, the mark of the cognitive changes. The mark of the cognitive is not mental representation. It's one thing that you can do, right? To use mental representations to engage with the world sometimes, but you can do other things. So the mark of the cognitive becomes something more interesting to AI. The mark of the cognitive becomes um, something about how adequate the behavior is according to a certain specific situation that is happening, right? So then in that case, it opens a whole branch for the possibility of artificial intelligence to eventually, potentially, just potentially, to be seen as a cognitive system, right? Because the idea is that the mark of the cognitive is whether or not an agent alive or not alive, whether or not an agent is engaging with the environment such that it is adjusted, it is adapted, it is even attuned to the environment. So then if you will happen to eventually see um, a system that is artificial, but behaves continuously in a way that is that has a purpose and is is uh, adequate. Their behavior show adequacy with the environment. Then there's potential for um, at least it's to be called an agent, potentially cognitive. So is there is there a potential there then for? in some ways humans have limitations if there is an artificial intelligence of sorts that's able to adapt and to to have as a, as a living entity all these ways of doing things where they have potentially a higher ceiling than than humans do because they're able to adjust and adapt more adequately maybe than than what 
humans do currently? Is is that a potential possibility that is is there within a uh, a, a system in this way? Well, that depends because the question there there now is um, is the Turing test still viable, right? Because what is this adaptation that we are talking about? Okay, so then let's keep with these two frameworks that we start that we have been working with, right? So you have on the one hand the mind machine analogy, on the other hand you have, of course, the other one I've not spelled it out entirely, but I've alluded to it, which is a much more embodied and much more phenomenology inspired kind of like framework, right? So when we are saying that we would have to observe an artificial intelligent behave in a way that it 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 shows these these um nuanced adjustments to a certain specific environment what is it that we are talking about because if we keep up with the traditional mind machine metaphor then maybe chat is it when i have a conversation with it right but if you jump into the e-cognition conversation, then the chat GPT is not because adapting and adjusting to the environment means to have a body that goes around the world and adapts and adjusts to the environment in a very sensitive way, right? Um, so that's what you would need to see. So I'll give an example of what I mean. So one of the um, motivations for e-cognitive science to, to sort of like remove the mark of the cognitive from mental representation and to broaden it up to include all living systems is because they observe that. So I like this kind of like thinking that starts by observing the world as opposed to starting by having a lot of ideas. Um, so first go to the world and observe. So what you observe is you observe um, bacteria, you observe plants. Um, there are um, these living systems that thrive really well in, in, in defying the second law of thermodynamics and maintaining themselves alive. Uh, these are the most simple systems that I can think of. And they show behavior, cognitive behavior, yes. that um, is textbook cognitive function. So if you go and grab any book from cognitive psychology, cognitive functions are memory, decision-making, perception, uh, social cognition. So these are textbook cognitive functions. And the simplest creatures like bacteria or plants, they show behavior where they show um, uh, being able to perceive their environment, being able to predict future states, being able to organize in communities and communicate with each other, right? And they do all of that without having brains, mm -hmm. right? So then the question becomes, are these agents, are these living systems cognitive or not, right? And what these uh, researchers under the E umbrella think is that, yes, they do show cognitive behavior. So they are cognitive, uh, at least they are agents, and at most they are cognitive um, systems, which would be, of course, if you define the mark of the cognitive as being mental representation, then you have to call these systems something else because um, they don't have brains and, and all of that. So basically, what you have is, under this other side, what you have is a definition that is way broader, and the, um, the definition 
definition of cognition becomes whether or not a system adequately engages with the environment for a certain purpose. What purpose? To remain alive. So when you do see, so now I'm going to extrapolate, when you do see an agent that happens to be of the artificial kind that has a purpose, navigates the environment for a purpose of being alive and does that in a very adjusted way, then you may be talking about an artificial intelligent uh, agent that is cognitive. I, I guess uh, so. I, I fully agree with everything you're saying. I, I think it is a kind of inference because if you don't need brains and or minds, if there's an embodied component for various cognitive systems, you could say that. I would just say that the the boundaries for different types of AI are limitless. Then in that way, because you have many. I think a lot of the times we think of of this long term view of AI in very science fiction ways, which are you know okay that those are some of them. But I think that it's more it's more it's sometimes it's just more vague in that way. I always think of um, I always think of Hal Nine Thousand from two thousand one. Right, it's just such a such a great film. And Kubrick did a great job of of the supercomputer that's this artificial intelligence that, you know, there's no embodiment there necessarily, but it's the idea of, you know, could something be more um, uh, deceptive than than humans, which is scary to think about. And um, I just wonder where the the possibilities go. I want to I want to ask. Maybe we'll come back to it, but I know we've mentioned it a bunch of times, but. Uh, I'll give you a full full runway here um, for to tell me where, why, and where and how <laughs> does Merlu Ponty come in here? Right. So we've mentioned him a few times. Um, uh, you know, I'm a big fan. Obviously, you're a big fan. So how do you marry his phenomenological ideas with some of the stuff from Greek philosophy and with how we understand, you know, prediction processing and and uh, and neuroscience. Um, I mean, you can you can give the setup here. I'll just say, Merleau-Ponty was a French philosopher in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, that his brand of phenomenology, he he did a lot of that. Was he had a lot of? Um, I I really do want to ask you about this because I, I it'd be interesting. He had a lot of issues with mental representations. <laughs> And he had a lot of criticism about Gestalt psychology of the day, um, uh, which which I think his criticisms were were fair actually. Um, and so he's trying to think about with this whole you know figure grounds you know foreground background kinds of things, um, but trying to understand his his biggest piece of all of understanding, you know, to the things themselves of, of how we understand many things in the world is. That the phenomenology of of our experience, right, is through the body, right? You have to, it is a necessary component, which I think a lot of the times if you read, you know, Heidegger or even, um, you know, uh, Levinas or other folks like that, other phenomenologists, Husserl, that they don't talk much about the body or they don't, they don't put it as the, uh, the, the main character, the central character like he did. And he saw it as essential. Um, which I which I think is is right, and people still after don't don't 
focused on that as much. So how do so so maybe just say what is it about his I guess philosophy that is a good philosophical framework for understanding many of the type much of the research that you do and that we've been talking about here with how we understand free energy principle and, and everything else. Yeah. Uh, okay. So first, let me address just um, that. Yes, indeed, other existentialist philosophers. Um, such as Heidegger, um, did not focus on the body, um, but they did other setups that are extremely important. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I absolutely love that first chapter of um, of phenomenology of perception when body. It's precious. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely precious. And how the way that I like to tell the story, and or at least the way that I link them, um everybody has a very important role to play. So I like this term from Heidegger of thrones. Yes. Everybody's thrown yes. into the world. Yes. And now picking up from Sartre, that is the only moment where you don't choose. Mm-hmm. You don't have any freedom. You are thrown into the world. Now what? Mm-hmm. Right? So once you are thrown into the world, you start inevitably, and I want to stress inevitably, interacting with the world. So an infant is going to cross the room to go reach a toy, uh, and by doing that, it is the infant is using their body. Yes. So it is using their body to navigate the environment, and not only is the infant using their body, but it's also observing the Patterns, there are consequences of those moving. So it's also, it's not only an exploration of the environment, it's also an exploration of the body in the environment. And that's when learning starts occurring, right? And you absolutely have no choice as you are thrown in the world. So what you then have choice is what is it that is going to become meaningful to you? And that's where Sartre comes in with the burden of freedom, of choice, right? So you have to inevitably start interacting and navigating the world in whatever way it is meaningful to you. And you see here, I can make we can make some links with the free energy principle. What are the states that are going to be meaningful to a particular embodied agent? Right? Without this embodied agent, you have no meaning. So that's where you find a very interesting connection that you will not find when you conceive the mind as a machine. Mm -hmm. Because once you conceive the mind as a machine, there are many consequences. But one consequence is that then what is it that is meaningful to you that is not meaningful to me? We are all made of the same and constituted in a very similar form, right? As almost as if we had no say in how we are constituting ourselves as almost as if we have absolutely no responsibility in the world that we inhabit. So on the Merleau-Ponty existentialism, phenomenologism, kind of a phenomenology, kind of like tradition, you have that responsibility, right? Um, which then uh, Simone de Beauvoir came in and very rightly so and insightfully so, uh, called the ethics of ambiguity, right? Which is also extremely important. So all of these that I'm talking about, I'm, I'm bringing this up as 
meaning. So we are meaning makers. We are meaning generators, right? So we navigate the world and we seek preferred states, not because there is some kind of like computer or, we, or the mind is reduced to some kind of computer, but because we are navigating the world in a certain way. And not only are we navigating and exploring the world in a certain way, like an infant crosses the room, like crawling for a toy, right? We are all also exploring our embodiment of the world. That is the point of view. It is inevitable. You cannot just choose now. I'm just going to have a different kind of embodied experience. You cannot just do that. If you could, then the meaning, the world of the, the world would become a completely different world because the meanings would completely change. Imagine that now you would wake up on a, on a Kafka kind of like a novel and you would be this beetle or it's not really a beetle, I think. But anyway, you get the idea. You will uh, wake up to be a butterfly. All the meanings in the world would, would completely change. Like your states because your state space would change, right? So this is the interesting point I find that you can find very interesting connections with the free energy principle, which is why. I like to take this high road as completely opposed to the low road that I described because I can make all of these very interesting connections. But the fact, and I want to stress this, the fact that I can make these interesting connections does not mean that everybody needs to make it because a lot of uh, the work that is done in free energy principle is done within the low road. Okay, so most people take the very computationalist approach. Right. I just I just that's not my favorite. And um, I uh, I am I usually have a tough crowd. Um, <laughs> but to come back now to the to the to the body, to say something about um, how the meaning is generated from the body point of view, because, of course, somebody in, could could turn to me and say, well, sure, the body plays a very important role. Andy Clark could be right here next to me and tell me, yeah, sure, the body plays a very important role. It is to um, allow the system to navigate the environment in order to gather more information to update the model. That's predictive processing a la Andy Clark. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that is something that um, would not be compatible with Merleau-Ponty's first chapter on the body, for example. Um, because um, quite clearly, uh, for Merleau-Ponty and the phenomenological tradition, the body uh, and the way that you embody is, okay, let's start over. You are thrown into the world, right? No choice. And then you start interacting with the world in a way that Merleau-Ponty describes as a directedness to the world. Yeah, yeah. Which almost is like you are attracted towards the world and not against it. You have this attraction to the world, to navigate the world, or in ecological psychology terms, the environment invites to exploration. And now I'm going to put it in free energy principle terms, right? In order to maintain myself alive, I need to interact with the environment. If I go into a dark room, I will die. So that's where all of these like different theories can, can meet. They can meet when, when done properly, they can meet. Um, so then the body is seen not as part of this computational machinery of information processing as predictive processing, uh, would claim. But the body is seen as the I can, not a I think. The body is not seen as 
in the predictive processing information theory kind of understanding of the body would be a part of a I think kind of mechanism, right? But this is exactly what Merleau-Ponty says it's not. Merleau-Ponty says that embodiment is the I can. I can what? I can navigate and participate in the world in a way that it is meaningful to me from my embodied perspective. I can navigate the world in that meaningful uh, way um, to me. So that's what this strong embodiment um, says that is uh, very much different from what we would say a weak embodiment that is uh, endorsed by predictive processing uh, theories. Even when they call up the body, the body is not this kind of like I can kind of body that Merleau-Ponty is talking about. So I agree with all of that. So here's where I want to be more specific and you can tell me how how specific you want to get. But uh, so much of the absolute you know, masterpiece of uh, phenomenology of, of perception is he, he Marilu Ponti goes into extensive length to talk about many things. And much of them is about the senses. So most of the time when people think about the body, they think about the senses, the five major senses that we, we usually we usually associate with. Of course, there are more ways of sensing, if you will. But that's not only what is embodiment, is the senses. If you have an injury of, uh, of one of your senses, right? you're blind, you're deaf, or some other type of injury, you still... And he he also mentions this as well of people that have various injuries. He does talk about for folks that are lost loss of vision. You still have a phenomenal phenomenological uh, way of interacting with the world and your environment. And again, the reason why this is, you know, part of the reason entitled perception, is because how our body is interacting with the world, yes, through the senses, but beyond the senses, if you will is determinant in essence of how one person is perceiving things. And that's not always going to be the same thing. Hence why, you know, when we have objective reality and all of these things, it's very hard to say, well, of course the tree is green because I see it as green and it's green, but it's not necessarily right. I mean, in some ways it, we, we see it that way, right? Because of how our, our vision is and, but to other animals, it's not that way. But it is something what it, what it is to be that, right? Okay, fine. There's the, the consciousness thing aside. How do we understand specifically what Merleau-Ponty was trying to understand with how our senses and our perceptions of our phenomenological experience are happening through our body? Because it's not just sensorium. It is more than that. And how do you in, interact or 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 acknowledge uh, that component of understanding the world in in the body. Yeah. Um, yes. So that's very good because yeah, you can do this Merleau-Ponty kind of approach and say in the weak embodiment by just staying with the senses and how the senses are really important for overall cognition, and then you would be endorsing a sort of like a weak embodiment kind of thing. But yeah. that's not where Merleau-Ponty stopped, right, right, right. as we know. 
So that's why Merleau-Ponty makes this crucial distinction between the lived body and the biological body. The biological body is the body that has the senses, the sensorial organs, right? So that's the, the biological body. But when Merleau-Ponty was talking about embodiment, he was talking about the lived body experience, which you could call it, it has been formulated as a form of like a minimal um, self kind of, kind, of, kind of thing. And this, uh, lived, this lived body uh, experience um, is much more than the senses. Imagine the senses as just more organs that you have, like you have the stomach, you have other organs in your body that all together interact with each other, hopefully in a very, very healthy way. And then you have a biological body. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a lived body experience, which simply means that the experience that I have as an agent is going to be... um an encounter of the body that I have situated in a specific environment together with the history of interactions that I have had with the world in the past. So the lived body experience is not just disassemble. And I think it's got like a passage that is almost like that, like a just a position of organs. Mm-hmm. So the lived body experience is not just that just a position of, 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 of organs, but much more than that. It is a position that I occupy, a standpoint, a perspective that I occupy in the world from which the world is what it is to me. Right. It is what makes the world different to me, such that I have a perspective that you could not have. No no matter how much you tried. Why? Because you do not have the same body that I do. And also you have not been enculturated in the same ways that I have. You don't have the same experience that I do. So I can try to convey it to you by using these um, symbolic skills that I've been acquiring and I can try to express them to you. But you cannot have the experience that only I can from this lived body standpoint, right? And another very important um, aspect of it that I, I find that makes it the point really, we can really bring the point home is that And Wittgenstein would say that the reason that we don't notice it, it's because it is right before your eyes. So the body is right there before your eyes. This experience is right there before your eyes. Beyond this experience that is allowed by by your body, there's nothing because you don't have access to it. You do not have access to anything that is not from your embodied perspective. It's not possible to you. Um, so as a, like another passage by Wittgenstein, if a lion could speak, you would not understand because you have no idea what it is like for a lion. Um, but anyway, um, the idea is that the body is right there, right before your eyes, giving you the perspective that you have to the world, your world. Um, so the body is this lived body experience. It's transparent. It is not only until something is wrong. So, for example, I harm uh, myself in my wrist, right? And all of a sudden, because I cannot go to the world, and I said I cannot, right? Because that's the important 
term. The body is what can go to the world, right? I cannot go to the world now in the same way because I, 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 I've got hurt on my wrist. And now I start like inspecting my wrist as an object of scientific inquiry. What is wrong with my, my wrist? What happened here? So now it becomes an object. The body is not transparent anymore. The body becomes salient because now the body is not allowing me to go to the world in a way that it should, that I usually go. So now the body becomes an object, right? So this, I think I find it's, it's, it's insightful to understand the distinction between the biological body, which is an object of scientific inquiry, mm-hmm. and the lived body experience, which is what is there um profoundly and 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 entirely dictating what my world is mm-hmm. i think on the last point of the 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 lived experience is hard for people to kind of it's something that we do but i think when people discuss it it's hard for them to to think about i want to ask about this right so i'm curious what your thoughts are on this <clears throat> We've been talking about the mind and the brain at different points. We've talked about the body and embodiment. We've talked about these lived experiences. So I don't want to talk about consciousness. Um, We can if you want, but that's not where my question is going here. (laughs) My question here is, so what what do you think or what do you intuit i guess about this idea or this concept of the self because the self is uh, in some ways and how some people may define it an amalgamation of these things it's a brain and a mind and maybe consciousness and there's a body and there's you know thoughts and feelings and and perceptions and things like that so a little more abstract here i guess uh, if that's if that's possible how, how do you how do you how do you do you think of the self um in one sense uh, or or many senses so uh, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit on my end so i think the self as it is of a person inside your brain pulling the strings and telling i think that's an illusion i don't think that exists right i don't think that those that, that's not how the self is right but there are some people i have this very fun and long standing uh uh, disagreement with uh, Brian Lowry, he's a social psychologist who who believes the self is all a social construction, right? It, 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 it's communities that tell you what you are as a self, and if you don't have community or if they don't accept you as one way how you identify, then you are not that. That he, he goes full social constructionist on this, which is very fascinating. We have very fun conversations about this. Um, I don't agree with him on that on that end of things, but so I'm curious. I'm curious for your thoughts on on the self, not as a person inside of you, you know, driving the car kind of thing, but however you define the self, if you do, and how do you see it as like um kind of being in the world, if you will, right? How do you see the self as as you know, a constant thing or something in the world based on all of the things that we've discussed with the brain and the mind and and embodiment. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, That is really cool. So um, I tend to take um, a processes approach as opposed to a substance approach. 
Um, no, which, so no, so no Aristotle here. No, no Aristotle. No, no substance. No, 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 none of that. No. <laughs> yes. No. No. None of that. None of um, thinking about the self as any kind of uh, substance that exists. Because see what happens in philosophy of mind. Once you start saying that it is a substance, you have a you have a, a, a vast number of problems that you need to solve. Yeah. What kind? So then you you are down into metaphysics. So what is this kind of thing that you call self? And then you have uh, uh, um, a number of theories that are trying very hard to understand what the self is, this thing that exists. So for Dennett, it is an illusion, right? For some of the people, it is of a different kind. So then you have dualism, right? For other people, the self does not exist and it's uh, these physical processes in the brain and um, all of that talk doesn't have a reference in the world. Therefore, it should be eliminated. And then you have uh, eliminativism. So um, I do not take a substance approach. Um, I don't think um, it makes much sense. Um I think of the self as these forms of patterns of existence. So there you go. Um, that's where you um, link um, this existence, these idiosyncratic forms of existence, where I like to think of it um, as with the help of uh, Heidegger's thrownness into the world, like literally imagine that you're thrown into the world. And then from that point on, you start interacting with the world and observing the patterns of your interaction with the world. And it doesn't have to be transcendental, doesn't have to be anything ideal other than patterns that you observe as you interact and navigate the world according and towards your own purpose and your own meanings or what is relevant and meaningful to you, to your projects. So then the self becomes these um, pattern, patterns that you experience, right? So then you are this person that is thrown into the world into a certain point, um, a point upon which you start interacting with the world and observing certain patterns such that in the present moment, you are the confluence of um, the situation that you are at so the social cultural situation that you are at, because I do not want to convey that all of this happens in an encapsulated mode and culture has no influence. Actually, I think culture has a lot of influence to it. Maybe I'm not a radical constru constructivist as, as, as the one that you were just mentioning. Um, probably, uh, prob probably I am not, but I do think culture plays an enormous influence in shaping, um, whatever you, um, end up at a certain point in time. Um, but at that point in time, whatever it is, you are the sum of um, that particular circumstance that you find yourself at, so that particular situation, and um, covering with all of your um, past interactions with the environment. So it doesn't have to be a thing that is in here or is in there, but it is simple, simply this um, uh, sort of like point of view, this perspective, this inevitable perspective. It's like I cannot choose right now, no matter how much I try and I want to, I cannot choose not to be enculturated in the way that I've had 
with the experiences that I had, which brings me right here in front of you to be in the perspective that I am right now. So that's what the self is. Nothing more, nothing less than the patterns that brought me to be behaving and interacting with you in the way that I am right now. I, I think I'm, I'm, I, I don't disagree. So <laughs> I think I have a little, I think there are some pieces where I would maybe add to it. So let me try and see what you think about this. Okay. Would you agree now? Again, some people may argue with this, but I don't know if it's required, but I think that it is there, if you will. Yes. Culture, environment, social cultural aspects, all of the the confluence of all of our experiences throughout our life in the past, you know, presently, right? Time, right? You know, doesn't really exist in one way, right? It's all wrapped up within our being, right? All that stuff. Okay. <clears throat> in those, in all, considering all of that, yes, all of those things make up the self, and we have different pieces of ourselves, right? How, how I'm interacting with you is going to be different than how I interact in my, my job and how I interact in, in, when I'm, when I'm, you know, a professor and I'm teaching with my family, all these things, right? Okay. But I guess the thing that always kind of trips me up here is all of that is, is a, is a collection of experiences here, right? You need something centralized to make it cohesive, right? Now, this is my, this is maybe my prior coming in, right? But you, you cannot have, I don't think, it, it's, it's like a, like a, like a, a collection of experiences to make what you call a self, I, I think is, yes, that, but it's not only that. What I would add, and so, Maybe maybe if I throw this here, this might be a little bit too far, but there are things that are determined by our biology and our genetics. Now, again, you know, some people get really, you know, they start getting real nervous when you start bringing in those words, but that do set us, right, on a course for a variety of different ways, right? So this would be maybe the element of the thrownness piece of it. We were thrown into the world with certain, if you will, programming, right? If, if you want, or there's a certain, there is a program, right? We have genotypes, we have phenotypes, et cetera, right? And those are also coming from, you know, <clears throat> generations, you know, of, of, of our evolutionary history, et cetera. Okay. But the, the three that I explained to, to Brian, which he still didn't quite agree with, but is we have, um, we have some the, the idea or the, 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 the parts of cognition, right? We have intelligence, right? We have intelligence that is different. We, I believe in G factor, things like that, intelligence. We have personality and we have temperament. Yeah. These are three components that every single human being has, right? And they're replicated, which is, you know, pretty much hard to find nowadays in psychology and the social sciences, right? You know, they replicate and they replicate cross-culturally. And they have for decades now, right? <clears throat> if you, if you, okay, let's take out the empirical thing for a minute. 
if you, if I were to ask you, this may be his temperament, maybe personality, but there are things about you that have been true in how you are, what makes you who you are as an individual. And I would say this probably for all organisms. Things that are true about you when you were four or five that consistently are the same for you across time. You could have all of the conglomerate of experiences that you want, but you still have a core element of what it means to be you, whether you had different experiences or not. Obviously, you can grow, you can evolve, you can you change in some ways, but there's there's the same right pieces of what there's a constancy there's this 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 constant stability there are things about me that are going to always be true based on my temperament and my personality and that are going to be influenced and impacted by life experiences and relationships various you know hardships and failures and successes so on and so forth where i live where i don't live things i learn things i don't learn but there are things about me of how I'm thrown into the world based on that have genetic underpinnings that are not prescriptive or they don't predetermine how we live. There's enough malleability there, but there's enough aspects of the central core of what it means to be a unique individual that has constancy and stability throughout time with all of those life experiences. Would, would, you, would you disagree with me here or, or where, where do you feel on, on, on what I'm saying? No, I would not disagree at all. And I would I would go very much uh ponty on you now. And please, please. And I would say that you are absolutely right in saying, okay, but if we are this collection of experiences, what is this element that is gonna bring this all together to make sense, right? Um so the element of uh, consistency, the that that element that remains and is there, uh, putting all of this together, is nothing more, nothing less than the body. That is the element, because it is in the body that you have both the biological body that you're talking about that comes with all of these constraints and preconditions. Yeah. And then you also have the element of the lived body experience, which is shaping who you are, if you want to speak in those terms, right? So the body shapes who you are, right? The the lived experiences that you have, they are lived the way that they are because of the body that you have. And the body is the only thing. Everything has changed ever since you were born. The body is the only thing that is there with you. It's been there for you every single step of the way, right? So that's the element that is going to bring it all together. But I'm not referring to the biological body. Yes, yes, yes. yes. The biological body has been there, obviously, with all the constraints that it brings, obviously, undeniable. Um, But then there you have your lived experience. Now, I'm going to add another layer to it. Because this lived experience is not only depending on the body that you have. It is very much depending on the body that you have. So let's think about whether you would be like a different kind of body that would not be a human being, but would be like a a non-human animal, for example, Um, or even the variety of different bodies that you can have as a human being, right? But let's add another layer, which is culture. 
right? You, as you are born and thrown into the world, um, right, you are thrown into a culture. And that culture comes with hierarchies and stratification and segregation, right? Which is why John Rawls very insightfully asked us to um, legislate by supposing the, the, the veil of ignorance, right? So if you want to legislate, you want to uh, suppose that you are going to be born and you don't know in what conditions, mm-hmm. geographically aware, what kind of body you're going to have, what kind of um, all of those kinds of like very social, cultural kind of like properties or conditions, right? Okay, so you are born into all of that. So that means that your experiences are going to be profoundly shaped by the body that you have in relation to a certain sociocultural hierarchy. Mm. Right. So the, uh, those are the experiences that are going that are going to define the person that uh, is interacting with the world right now. Right. So your interaction with the world in a certain time is dependent on all the previous interactions that you have had. So that's the idea. And the only thing that has been remaining the same is your body, because I do. I do. Uh, I am a big fan of Heraclitus. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. So basically, uh, the idea that you cannot bathe in the same river twice. You have changed, the river has changed, right? Right. There's one thing that we can think that remains the same, which is this embodied perspective Mm -hmm. that is there throughout times, allowing you to go to the world. I can go to the world, right? And then you become... um, this history of patterns and interactions that you have had, that doesn't mean that right now in front of someone in a certain point in time, you are carrying around a self. That just means that you are going to interact with someone in a specific kind of social interaction, either be it at work or with your family or here with me in different ways, given the, the other patterns that you have seen in the past in similar kind of environments. Or in similar kind of situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I I totally agree. I think you're right. I think that there's, I mean, I have a million other things I could say about that. I mean, one of the things that pops up to me is this idea of space, which obviously is something that he, he Merleau-Ponty wrote about and talked about, and uh, and others have as well. Um, but uh, I do I do want to be respectful of your your time, so. I guess the, the the last question I have for for you here though is how when we think about all of these very you know big big concepts and these big ideas and many of it is is technical and precise and and sometimes hard to understand how do how do we when as we're trying to as we're trying to understand more about <clears throat> the world around us and about what it means to be human and how we do create meaning, you know, through the body, et cetera. And we have all of these things and we have all of these changes, you know, we talked about AI and some of the technological advances, I guess for, for scientists and for uh, public thinkers and or intellectuals, if you will, and for, you know, the, the common person as well, how do we do, how do we, how do you think we can maintain 
knowing our history, a better uh, epistemic humility for what we know and what we don't know, um, you know, as we, as we progress in the 21st century. Well, that is a very important question. Um, I do have um, a lot of thoughts about that. I think that um, it's through education. It's through people having access to good education and especially um, having access to critical thinking. Um, That is the most powerful tool for us to become better individuals, but also for us together to become a better version of what it means to be the human species. Um, Be that in relation to the environment, to the natural world, to earth, be that in relation to the way that we use AI, um, be that to the way that we together as a species look or bring forth, as Maturana would say, bring forth the problems to be solved with our AI technology power and and resources, right? Um, so I think that the way to get there or one of the ways to get there is through the very beginnings of it, which is education, uh, as opposed to misinformation and miseducation. We need to educate ourselves and educate um, the new generations for critical thinking. Um, there is nothing that is more powerful than that because then they can individually be fully autonomous and humble about how difficult things are because things are nuanced, right? Um, and how difficult things are once you start exercising that kind of like critical thinking I think one 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 thing that comes naturally is humility. So I would say that um educating uh for critical thinking is one one important part of that conversation. Yeah, I would agree. I would I would also assume that uh that it's not only our rationale uh or rationality that we have, but also how we how do we how do we respect our own and other people's, um, you know, embodied experiences as well and what that means for the, the whole, you know, the whole gestalt of the person and and what that looks like and, and how that presents and 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 what that means. Absolutely. And one thing that really comes out of when you take this embodied approach, when you think of cognition as this very individual standpoint that is inevitable, then humility also comes with that because the insight comes that this is my perspective of the world, right? As uh, together with the many other possible perspectives that I could have, but I cannot have because I, I come from this standpoint that I come from. Right, which is all the interactions that we've been talking about, the past interactions that I've had, given the body that I have in my particular social cultural situation. Right, so the humility comes from the fact that this is my own standpoint amongst many other standpoints that other people have, not can, they have. So then you must be way more charitable and compassionate about other people's experiences. I think that's what also the the 
ethical, if you will, implications of taking a more embodied perspective of cognition as opposed to other approaches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree. Um, well, Ines, this has been such a wonderful conversation. This is quite lovely, very stimulating. I, I, I was uh, not disappointed at all and looking forward to talking with you. And we had such so, so many wonderful things to, to, to cover. Um, where's the best places for people to find your research and to find you online or, or anywhere else? Well, um, thank you so much. Likewise, I love to nerd out about um, all of these things. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to do so. It's so much fun. Um, I am active on Twitter. So it's just, you can find me with, with just my, my name. Um, and my website is usually also quite updated. So it's just www.myname.com. So that'll be it. And thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun. Yes, no, no. Again, the pleasure is all mine. Uh, you're, you're, you're quite lovely and very, very, very brilliant. And so it was, uh, it was just a joy to talk to you about all these important things. And um, uh, hope to, to do it again soon. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Bye.